0: If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Brian Andrew Hayes was born in December 1991, and Mark Anthony Degner was born in July 1992. In 2005, the two boys were special education students at Paxson Middle School in Jacksonville, Florida. At the time, 12-year-old Mark and 13-year-old Brian were both classified as developmentally delayed with the emotional development of a child three to five years younger than their chronological age. They both had bipolar disorder, had frequent mood swings, and took daily medications. Brian suffered trauma and abuse from his father as a toddler and was removed from the home and placed in foster care. He was then in and out of several different foster homes. His mother could not support Brian, and in 1998, at age 7, he was legally adopted by his grandparents. He had a humorous personality, but also frequent angry outbursts, hypertension, and kidney issues. Brian also suffered from ADHD, PTSD, and ODD. In need of more assistance, he was accepted into a group home known as the Daniel House, which offered therapy, treatments, behavior management, and many other benefits. He also spoke with his grandparents daily and was said to be doing very well. His grandmother said the last time she saw him was when they went out to eat dinner and he had reportedly told her he was pleased with his new home. There's not as much information on Mark, but we know he moved from Indiana to Jacksonville, Florida. Mark lived with his mom and was still adjusting to the move, but found friendship with Brian at his new school. While they were both in special education, Mark required much less care and attention than Brian. On February 10, 2005, at about 1 p.m., Mark got into an argument with a teacher, ran out of the school building, and met up with Brian. This is when they both disappeared and have never been seen again. They took nothing with them, not even their book bags, and no one ran after them. A witness saw them crossing the baseball field, briefly stopping in a dugout, and continuing through a fence. It's unknown which direction they went after this, Many speculate they had been groomed by someone who may have encouraged them to run away to meet them, not understanding the risk. Either way, neither of their families was notified. The school did not inform Brian's group home, Mark's mother, or even the police. This part is unclear, but someone, possibly a teacher or employee of the school, called the school resource officer and left a voicemail, but no one else was allegedly notified. Five hours later, the staff at the Daniel House filed a missing person report for Brian when he didn't arrive home. It was almost eight hours later when Mark's mother, Linda Allgood, came home from work and found that her son had never come home from school and she reported him missing. Therefore, eight hours passed before anyone was aware to begin looking for both boys. Bryant's grandmother, Aileen Hayes, his legal guardian, wasn't even notified until the next day by the Daniel House. Both families began searching for the boys, but it would be several weeks before the media would pick up on the story. They were initially listed as runaways, but a week later, it was changed to missing and endangered. Police went door to door, but most of the community was not alerted to their disappearances. During the investigation, over 60 local registered sex offenders were questioned. The boys were known to be best friends and had told other kids they planned to run away. They had planned the incident in advance, and a third boy was supposed to go with them but changed his mind and stayed at the school. One witness later claimed that they saw one of the boys getting into a car outside the school that day, but it wasn't clear if both boys entered the vehicle. Some witnesses reported seeing the boys in the woods at the intersection of North Main Street and 32nd Street, several miles from the school. Other witnesses reported seeing them between a mobile home park and a cemetery, about eight miles east of the school after they went missing. Interestingly, the day before they disappeared, a school resource officer caught them trying to sneak away from the buses at the end of the school day. Brian had run away from home before, but never more than a few miles from home, and never for longer than a day. Mark, on the other hand, had no history of running away. Both were relatively new students at the school, and with Mark from Indiana and Brian from Port Orange, Florida, they were very unfamiliar with the area. There have been several sightings of the boys throughout the years. Two people claimed to have seen them in the Holly Hill area afterward, but a search by police turned up no sign of them. Age-progressed images of the boys have been released over the years showing what Mark and Brian may look like at different ages. It's speculated they could still be in the same area where they went missing and someone knows their whereabouts. Then, in early 2017, The FBI raided the home of Ronnie Hyde, a Jacksonville Beach man who was both a youth pastor and a foster parent. He was charged with the gruesome 1994 murder of one of his foster children, a 16-year-old named Fred Laster. The murder occurred 11 years before Mark and Brian went missing. So investigators began to wonder, had Mark and Brian chosen to run away on their own, or was it possible that a monster living in the area might have lured them into his trap, possibly Ronnie Hyde? Brian's grandmother said it's too coincidental that the boys disappeared about eight miles from Hyde's property on Thelma Street. Startling evidence was found inside Hyde's residence in Jacksonville Beach and his second home on Thelma Street in Jacksonville. In the beach house, evidence technicians found nine evidence markers for what could be bone fragments. One document read, The bathtub was found to have adhesive residue in multiple locations on the floor of the tub, which appeared to be in the same general shape and size as the five pieces of decorative non-slip pads that were found in the dumpster with Fred's torso behind a gas station in Lake City. He remained a John Doe for 20 years until forensic genetic genealogy helped identify him as Fred Laster. They also found thousands of photos of child pornography, clothing items with a reddish substance determined to be the DNA of an unidentified man, tools that could have been used for dismemberment, and what was referred to as clandestine graves. However, lab reports show that bones found while excavating Hyde's backyard were from animals. Later, a backpack with clothes was found at a vacant building on Windermere Drive and was labeled Mark D. It's unclear if the backpack belonged to Mark because neither boy left with one from school that day. Investigators believe the backpack was possibly associated with their disappearance and was in the vicinity of one of Hyde's homes. Since his arrest, many victims have reported being assaulted by Hyde years ago between the ages of 12 and 16. These troubled children described being lured into Hyde's homes when they were vulnerable or had run away from home. So far, no link has identified Hyde as responsible for the boys' disappearances and possible homicides. On April 1, 2022, Hyde was found guilty of first-degree murder, for the death and dismemberment of Fred Laster and sent to serve life in prison. Now that he will spend the rest of his miserable life behind bars where he belongs, hopefully he will come forward with information if he is responsible. The boys had no means of living without assistance, were not street smart, and were susceptible to manipulation. Doctors said they would have also suffered withdrawals from the medication they would be missing. Brian in particular could have faced fatal consequences without his medications for multiple serious ailments. Their families say it's hard to wrap their heads around the fact that they're now looking for grown men and not two young boys. Brian would now be 30 years old and Mark would be 31 years old and as of August 2022 these two cases remain unsolved. Rachel Karen Hurley was born in New Jersey on October 14, 1975, to parents Andrea and Daniel Hurley. They would later move to Jupiter, Florida, where Rachel attended Jupiter Middle School. Rachel played softball and was well-known and liked by her peers. She was described as feisty, having a strong and sassy personality, while also charming and strong-willed. She also loved to sing and dance with her close friends. On Saturday, March 17, 1990, 14-year-old Rachel spent the day with four other teens boating at Jupiter Inlet and hanging out on the beach. Rachel was supposed to be back on shore at 3 p.m. to meet her mother. But by 2.45 p.m. that day, Rachel was still a ways from where her mother would be picking her up. The boat docked at Du Bois Park, and Rachel and her friends, Aaron and Maddie, began to walk the path to Carlin Park, where Rachel's mother was waiting in her car less than a mile away. Aaron and Maddie said they needed to stop at the restroom, but Rachel continued because she didn't want to be late. This was the last time they would ever see her alive. She never made it to the parking lot where her mother was waiting. When Rachel didn't show up, her mother began to wonder if she was supposed to pick her up at another spot. She then wondered if Rachel had found another ride, and so she returned home. But when she arrived, she found no sign of her daughter. Panicked and confused, she returned to Carlin Park to search for her daughter. Others at the park would help search for Rachel, and by 5 p.m., the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office was notified. They launched a massive search involving multiple deputies, two boats, a helicopter, and three canine units. Tragically, after 8 p.m., Rachel's partially clothed deceased body was found. She was lying in a wooded area of Carlin Park, just east of the path leading south from Du Bois Park. It's believed that Rachel took a shortcut through the wooded area and encountered a sexual predator she had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. DNA from her rape kit and her bracelet would later be tested against the DNA of over a 100 men, half of them being homeless, but no matches were found. The reason a large number of homeless men were tested is that a homeless camp was nearby between the Civic Center and Du Bois Park. Also, condos were being built nearby and a group of carpenters working at the site lived nearby during construction. So, initially, there were endless possibilities of men that could have been in the area that day with evil intentions. Years later, added to the list of suspects was a man named Douglas J. Gross, who was a local 17-year-old at the time of the murder. An informant from the Sumter County Prison wrote a letter stating that Gross confessed to the crime. But Gross denied this. However, DNA testing of a bloody t-shirt found near the crime scene tied him to the shirt. But authorities claim this is not enough proof that he killed Rachel. Then in 2010, Todd Campbell became a person of interest. He hung out in the area at the time and was charged in 2010 with the 1984 murder of Vicki Lynn Long. Campbell went to trial for her murder, but was found not guilty. With the continued advancements in DNA technology, authorities are hoping a match or physical evidence will soon lead them to the killer. With DNA in evidence, it's curious if the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office will embrace forensic genetic genealogy, but as of August 2022, this case remains unsolved. Tiffany Darshay Hollis was born December 28, 1993, to parents Shonda and Tim Hollis. She was described as a good student, compassionate, intelligent, and loved fashion and high heels. She was a mentor to younger girls and also enjoyed working and spending time with the children at the daycare that her mother owned. At 16, she was a high school sophomore living in Jacksonville, Florida, and was well-liked by her peers and teachers. On the evening of March 20, 2010, Tiffany, her younger sister, two cousins, and another young woman were driving around looking for a friend's cookout when they got lost. They were driving around in an unfamiliar Mixon Town neighborhood and stopped at the corner of Calvin and Belford Street in Jacksonville. As they pulled up to the intersection, they noticed a group of men standing nearby. Suddenly, one or more men in the group began shooting at the car, not even knowing who they were shooting. It's rumored that they mistook the old police car with tinted windows for a similar-looking car of a rival gang. They believed the car pulled up to kill them, but it was a deadly case of mistaken identity. Tiffany was tragically shot in the abdomen and died as the driver quickly reversed to flee to safety. Her mother, now named Shonda Whitaker Ward, says that numerous people know precisely who shot inside the vehicle, but they're afraid to come forward. There were multiple witnesses to the shooting, and the men are known to be sorry for what they did, but not willing to turn themselves in, and witnesses remain afraid to give names to law enforcement. But Tiffany and her family deserve justice. Her family has created a foundation in Tiffany's name, and her younger sister opened a boutique in her name as she loved fashion. In addition to the daycare, Shonda also created a K-12 academy known as TDH Academy, which stands for Tiffany D'Arche Hollis. She also adorned the building in purple, her daughter's favorite color. The community began coming together on the 20th of every month to have a march for justice in the neighborhood where the senseless murder happened. They marched for peace and for young people to stop senseless killings and to stay away from guns. In 2018, some residents in the neighborhood confronted some of the marchers and a heated altercation occurred. Tiffany's grandmother, Eloise Whitaker, pleaded with the killer or killer's sense of morality by asking them what they would do if someone had done this to their daughter or sister. Hopefully, someone will provide information that leads to an arrest and give Tiffany's loving mother a sense of justice. Sadly, until then, this case remains unsolved. Jillian Marie Berrios was born on May 2, 1986, in Munster, Indiana, and moved to Florida with her family when she was in middle school. Jillian attended Orange Park High School, where she graduated in 2004 before attending Everest University to pursue a degree in business. She enjoyed dancing, karaoke, playing pool, and salsa dancing in local Spanish clubs, She was described as a loving mother and an all-around kind, humble person, the kind that would give you the shirt off their back. At the age of 27, Jillian was the mother of two and had begun working as a tax analyst in Orange Park, weeks before tragedy would strike. On October 18, 2013, Jillian and a group of friends spent the evening in Jacksonville, Florida, going around to various clubs celebrating a friend's birthday. They partied until the following morning, and Jillian was last seen leaving the Taboo Bar and Grill off Atlantic Boulevard. Unbeknownst to her and her friend, they were being followed by two people in a newer red Chevy Aveo as they drove back to Orange Park. About 20 minutes after leaving the bar, around 6 a.m., Jillian pulled into the Park Place apartments off Lowering Avenue to drop off her friend. That's when a black man got out of the car with a pistol and fired five shots into Jillian's car. She tried to flee, but crashed down the street on Loring Avenue and succumbed to her injuries. Her passenger survived her injuries, and for her protection, she remains unidentified. Jillian was not known to be a troublemaker and was never one to fight with other people, which makes it more difficult to understand why someone would want her dead. Her friend stated that there were no incidents or altercations while they were out having a good time. Surveillance footage from the taboo bar showed the red car following behind Jillian. A witness reported a partial license plate beginning with ESG or something similar, but that has not yet led to an identification. One possible theory about the murder relates to Jillian's boyfriend, Joseph Vasquez. He was arrested a couple of weeks prior on drug charges, and this was not his first drug-related arrest. Could someone have been retaliating against Vasquez for some reason or trying to send a message? Her loved ones continue to desperately search for answers and try to raise awareness of not only Jillian's cold case, but others as well. They feel that someone out there knows the details needed to solve her senseless murder. But as of August of 2022, this case remains unsolved. Lila Leach was born on November 28, 1913, in Marshallton, Delaware, and raised on a 200-acre farm in Newark, Delaware. Because she loved good music and was a 20-year employee of the DuPont Nemours Company, she became a member of the DuPont Chorus. Lila would sing soprano with them for many years, making four albums and touring with the DuPont Chorus along the East Coast. Then, in 1971, she moved from Delaware to Gainesville, Florida, and then later to Newberry with her husband, Edward Leach. While living in Gainesville, she was involved in the Alachua County Sheriff's Department's Citizens' Crime Watch program for several years. She was also a founding member of the Alachua County Genealogical Society and loved genealogy. For the last 20 years of her life, she had been a homemaker, and by the age of 96, she was a widow, a beloved mother to several children, a grandmother to 11, a great-grandmother to 12, and had two great-great-grandchildren. She lived alone in Newberry, Florida, a small town where everyone knew everyone. Lila was described as a remarkable woman who, at 96, was witty, happy, and full of life. Relatives checked in on her daily, often bringing meals and such. On July 16, 2010, her daughter stopped by and delivered a meal for her. Later that day, an evil person senselessly and brutally attacked her inside her home in the 26,000 block of Northwest 3rd Avenue. They ransacked her home, stole a few minor things, and left her for dead. Her injuries were so severe, her family did not even recognize her when she was discovered later that day. She remained on life support for seven weeks before succumbing to her injuries on September 6, 2010. In 2018, authorities used the DNA evidence from Lila's home to narrow the search to at least one male suspect. However, four years later, there has been no arrest in her case, and as of August 2022, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.